Today we've been looking particularly at the doctrines of the cross uh, and we were looking at that in John chapter 3 this morning and now this evening in Matthew 27 verses 45 to 46 is our text. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani that is my God, my God why have you forsaken me? So we have here a description of Christ hanging on the cross and the time period is between noon, the sixth hour and three o'clock in the afternoon on that first Good Friday. And you'll notice here that there is a description of darkness that encompasses the whole land. That darkness is also recorded in Mark's Gospel in chapter 15 and in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And it is one of a series of unusual happenings of phenomena that are recorded Uh, particularly in verses 50 through to 53 uh, in Matthew's Gospel. The veil of the temple being torn in two from the top to the bottom, the very thick curtain for the inner sanctuary, earthquakes, and then later resurrections of the saints uh, after the resurrection of Christ. And we have this extensive darkness over all the land. We know perhaps what it's like Occasionally for it to go dark in the middle of the day, perhaps through some um, storm, some weather system passing through. Uh, And this is far worse than that. This is far blacker than that, we might say. And it is a fact. It's not some sort of figurative statement here, some metaphorical statement. It is a fact that this happened. And it is referred to in other authors of the time including Tertullian. Um, And as we think of the cross of our Lord Jesus, we do well just to remember as a background fact that in the time of the Exodus, in the plagues that God brought on on, on Egypt through Moses' ministry, the plague that just immediately preceded the death of the firstborn, which we might call the final plague, the death of the firstborn, the one that was immediately before it, the ninth plague, was the plague of darkness. Uh, When the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. We can just imagine that, can't we? So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. There was this supernatural, thick darkness. Everything was absolutely black. And this is what is being recorded here, not for three days, although the number three is, of course, incredibly interesting here in Exodus. Not for three days, but for three hours. It couldn't possibly have been a storm. There's no account of wind or rain uh, and it wasn't an eclipse some people have suggested that this was an eclipse well eclipses last for three minutes rather than three hours and besides it was Passover it was at full moon 
when the sun and moon were at opposite ends of the earth. No, this is a supernatural darkness. And previously, as we read in Matthew 27, there was a lot of coming and going. There was activity. There were people shouting at Jesus, even the thieves shouting at him. But now it's silence. There's no more jeering and yelling. Perhaps if we could see inside the minds of those who were at the cross, there was a sense of deep fear, even of panic. They'd been asking repeatedly for a sign from heaven that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And now God had sent a sign. Now in a nonverbal way, he was testifying that they had just crucified the Lord of glory, the Son of God. So there's the darkness. And then secondly, in verse 46, there is the cry. About three o'clock in the afternoon, and after three hours of this darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. And clearly we're meant to understand that what he said is highly significant because we have both the Aramaic original and then an interpretation. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you know your Bible, you will know that Jesus is here quoting from Psalm 22, the first verse. He's not just quoting in a sort of literary way, but he's, this is how he felt. Something terrible was happening to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only a few hours previously, he had been able to say to the disciples that the, the Father did not leave him alone. But now, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to ask a number of questions then as we think of the darkness and the cry. And in a sense, they both go together, don't they? The meaning of the darkness is found in the cry. And the horror that the cry expresses points back to the darkness. They both interact with each other. They both point to each other and illustrate each other. And we need to ask some questions about this. The first is this, what was happening to Christ? Well, we come right to the heart of the gospel in these words. What was happening to the Lord Jesus Christ was indescribable suffering. Physical, of course, because the cross was a barbaric punishment invented by the Phoenicians and continued by the Romans. It was barbaric. It was incredibly painful and drawn out, but that was not the worst of the sufferings for our Lord Jesus Christ. There were mental sufferings, there were emotional sufferings, and above all, as these words make clear, there was spiritual suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that it's traumatic when children suddenly have their parents taken from them, perhaps in some car accident or a plane crash or something like that. And they can feel without, uh, and we can understand the feeling that they feel abandoned. Well, here we get some idea from that of what our Lord Jesus Felt. He felt left, he felt abandoned, he felt indeed excommunicated from the fellowship of the Father. Why have you forsaken me? 
We know from church history accounts, particularly if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs or read about the sufferings of the Reformation martyrs, we know that many of them felt really helped and blessed in the time when they were burnt alive, some of them, for their faith in Christ and their testimony to the fact that the bread and the wine are not transubstantiated, but they're just memorials of what happened at the cross. And you can read about these and read how some of them hardly felt any pain. Or if they felt pain, it was overwhelmed by the sense of God's presence. But Christ doesn't feel that. There's no sense here of him being upheld. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not even calling God now his father. He's not calling him Abba. Yes, he's holding on to God, but it's with a complete absence of any sense of fellowship with God. Indeed, what was happening? Well, the wrath of God was being poured upon Christ. There is personal, something personal in this. The Father is personally treating Jesus Christ as though he was the worst sinner in the world. Indeed, all the sins of the world are being heaped upon Christ. All the sins of all who had come to trust in him were being heaped upon him. And this was going on second after second. You can think, three hours, it was an eternity of suffering. Now, Jesus wasn't crucified for his own sin, at least not from God's perspective. He had no sin. Neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And here we see just the tip of the iceberg. We cannot see right into the heart of this, into the unknown sufferings of Christ. And it's as though God hides the whole scene from us by shrouding the cross in intense darkness. Something so mysterious here. God punishing God. Martin Luther meditated on this and he just couldn't plumb the depths of it. God punishing God. And we know that the very anticipation of what was going to happen was so appalling for the Lord Jesus Christ that in Gethsemane he sweated great drops like blood. That he was there lying on the ground. He was agonizing. It needed angels to strengthen his mortal frame so that he could continue and not die on the spot. It was appalling, and that was just the anticipation. And now it's happening. He's draining the cup to the full. Why was it happening? Well, it was happening because of us sinners and because of God's great love for us sinners. Let's just quickly look at three verses that speak and interpret something of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now we all know what a curse is in normal language. We know people curse each other and they do so out of malice. And we know that their words are empty, although they're full of malice. And we know, too, that people 
uh, somewhat perhaps more seriously but still with no real real value in what they're saying they use a curse like a, a pagan would use a curse a sort of omen of bad luck and that's just uh, false religion and hatred too but here we need to understand that the curse that came on Christ was God's curse and therefore is utterly holy it's his just judgment for sin and it's not empty there is a dynamic about it and there is what we might call a non-remedial aspect to it. It's not like sending someone to prison where at least the intention is there will be some change of character in them. This is penal. This is punishment. Pure punishment for the curse of the law. A broken law. Not for his own sins. But for the vast numbers for whom he is dying the countless numbers of sinners, the sins of the world, are upon Christ. And then, secondly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Paul speaking about the cross here. For he that is, God hath made him, that is, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the most intense way that the apostle can put it. Without saying that he became a sinner, which he did not become, his, his own nature was pure, his own nature was never defiled, yet at the same time he became so identified with our sin as to be called sin, he who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Someone has put it like this rather quaintly that God crossed hands here. Our sin to Jesus and his righteousness to us. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 here's the apostle Peter on what is happening. 1 Peter 3 18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Notice he suffered once because it was once and once for all, once and completed. The just, the righteous one, for the unrighteous, that's us. In order that he might bring us to God. Notice what the what it does, it brings us to God. It reconciles us to God when we take that death for ourselves. So that's what was happening, and that's something on why it was happening. Now let's just explore for a while what does it mean for us? What are the implications for us? What do we learn from the darkness and the cry? Well, firstly, we surely learn this, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The holy God hates sin so much that he must punish it even when it is in his own son. Even when it, Jesus is there at the receiving end. God so hates sin that he does not spare even his own son, his beloved son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased the Son who dwelt with him from all eternity. 
and yet he's not spared when sin is placed upon him. And we understand, therefore, how sinful sin is. As we see what it did to Jesus, as we see what God the Father did in order to atone for our sins through his Son, and we see, therefore, what an enormity and what a rebellion sin is. You can think of the knife crime that is increasing in our land and particularly in our cities. Those people who are knifed. Now, if that was one of your loved ones, one of your family who'd been knifed, would you, if you had the opportunity, take hold of that murder weapon and put it on your mantelpiece? Would you fondle it? Of course not. You'd hate the very sight of it. You'd loathe it. And this is how God sees sin. This God loathes sin. And yet people laugh at sin and think it's all wonderfully free and, and great. Is that you? Do you enjoy your sin? Do you shrug your shoulders about it all? What does it matter? Well, here we learn what it, how it matters because we see here the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the darkness, the cry. And then secondly, we see here the hellishness of hell. Now, let us not get uh, this wrong. Jesus Christ was not, he didn't enter into hell in the sense that the damned enter into hell because the damned in hell have their own sinfulness to add to the hellishness of that place. No, the Lord Jesus had no hellishness in his experience. But what we see of the intense agonizing spiritual sufferings of Christ made worse by his purity and made worse by the full wrath of God that fell upon him. If this is what it meant to Christ, what it must be like for those who die in their sins without Jesus Christ as their saviour. We learn just something, don't we, of the hellishness of hell. There's no light there's no love, there's no relief, there's no escaping it. It's, we see here the complete inevitability, if you die in your sins, of falling into the hands of an angry God, because God is not going to spare his son, why should he spare you or I if we die in our sins? We see here that God is certainly present in the sense that he is present, not in his loving fellowship and pity as it were but he's present in another sense he's present in inflexible power and inflexible justice to magnify his justice and his holiness yes there is a heaven but as sure as there is a heaven for believers so surely there is a hell for the impenitents don't doubt it for a moment these words testify to it. And you should leave no stone unturned until you know for sure that Jesus Christ is your saviour. You know, until you know for sure that you have found the one who endured what we might call hell in a loose sense for repentant sinners. The hellishness of hell. But thirdly and obviously and wonderfully we learn here the amazing love of God. Here is God's answer for our sin. We're guilty. 
All have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God. There's not one that seeks after him. Not one of us desires it. Until the Holy Spirit, of course, works in us to desire it. But before that, not one of us. We haven't any excuse because the Ten Commandments are clear and they're not only written in the Word of God, they're written on our hearts. The things that we should not do to others, the things we should do, particularly in relation to Almighty God. And here is this God whose holiness is absolutely outraged by our sins, and yet God gives his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to what the Apostle John says also in his first letter in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Yes, we love, but our love is just a reflex of his love. Our love is just our response to his love. And this is the love that counts that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In the darkness, in the cry, we see the amazing love of God, that Jesus Christ should go through all of that for your sake, that Jesus Christ should go through all of that so that the preacher might invite you from the pulpit to come to Christ and to find full and free forgiveness. So that as you think about these things, you think, think, can I know God? And the answer is, yes, you can know God. As you come to him through Jesus Christ, you can cry for mercy. The measure of Christ's sufferings is the measure of the forgiveness that we have in God as we come to Christ. And it shows us the love of God. God so loved the world. No sin is too vile but that the blood of Jesus cannot cover it. No disobedience is, goes on for so long, but that God can place it behind his back through what he did to his son here. No guilt is so deserved that he, Jesus, cannot take it from you and suffer on your behalf as he did at the, cro at the cross. It's amazing love. It swallows up our guilt, it swallows up the darkness and the damnation. And fourthly, we see in this cross, we see it means for us an insight into the astonishing wisdom of God. Astonishing wisdom of God. God is true to himself. He cannot lie. He does not deny himself. He's absolutely full of integrity to himself. The triune God is absolutely holy. Holiness pervades him throughout. It's not an attribute. It's really a characteristic that's true of all his attributes. Everything that's about God is holy. Holy wisdom, holy power, holy justice. And here at the cross we have such a demonstration of that. A demonstration of his absolute 
holiness, his 100% purity and integrity. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. But also, at the same time, such a demonstration of his love that he gives his son to be the propitiation for our sins so that he can both be just, that is holy, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, that is love. That is astonishing wisdom. That his justice and his love, they kiss each other, as the hymn writer puts it. And as the psalmist puts it too. Astonishing wisdom. That is something to admire. That is something to worship God for. The exceeding sinfulness of sin, the hellishness of hell, the amazing love of God, the astonishing wisdom of God. And fifthly, what does it mean for us? What are the implications for us? Well, it's this, that we should glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the major implications of this. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in our particular version tonight. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. God forbid that I should boast or glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in order to glory in this cross, you have to first appropriate its precious things to yourself. You have to believe in what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. You have to trust him. You have to come to him to make it yours. That's a fundamental aspect of it. It's not a matter just of wearing a cross around your neck or on your lapel or somewhere like that. You have to glory in this truth you, to, to make it yours by faith in Christ. That's the implication, isn't it? So just to sit there and let it all pass over your head, that is not glorying in the cross. That is not boasting of the cross. That's ignoring the cross. You cannot glory in the cross, you cannot boast in the cross and still cling to your sins, can you? You cannot continue in your present way of life without God, forgetting him, not bringing everything under his lordship, not repenting of your sins, your particular sins particularly. You can't cling to that and at the same time glory in the cross. You can't glory in the cross and at the same time have confidence in your own goodness, in your own spirituality. We know straight away if somebody is not a true Christian because they have confidence in their own goodness and their own spirituality. And on the horizontal level, they might well be full of goodness and spirituality, but we know in the sight of God there is no man that can be justified apart from Christ. It's a sure sign that they're not glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't trust in your own goodness and spirituality. You can't mix that in, into the ingredients, and at the same time have confidence and boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. You just can't do it. They just don't mix. You can't boast in this death of Christ. You can't 
glory in this atoning death of Christ and at the same time minimize it and say, well, this is just the kindergarten of the Christian life. And once you get beyond that, you're into other things, bigger things. The Lord's Supper doesn't teach us that, does it? We look forward to starting again along with the Lord's Supper services. But surely the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to keep on bringing to us the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And is it not a grave weakness in our evangelical churches that we do minimize the sufferings and atoning death of Christ? We don't dwell on these things. We don't explore these things. We're working at such a superficial level. And how can we do that when we come to the three hours of absolute agony for our Savior? That's the response. And the question that each of us must face is this. Am I glorying in the cross? Is Christ's death and sufferings my pride, as it were? That's what I boast in. That's what I trust in. That's what I'm delighted in. It's not the sufferings of anybody else. It's not just the sufferings of a good man. But it's the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Not the sufferings of one of the saints, not the sufferings of one of the angels, but the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the God-man, who in order to suffer for us, became man, in order that he might partake of our human nature, in order to partake of our sufferings. Dear friends, this is what the cross of Jesus Christ is about. Let us learn to dwell on it much and to glory in our God and above all to worship him and above all to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and take these things personally to ourselves by the grace of God.